Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 19 of my podcast, I Stand Strong. I, as always, am Teddy, coming at you from my bear cave in the concrete jungle of the beautiful Northwest. Um, so yeah, here I am again. It's been two weeks. Uh, last time I talked about Dark Souls and my love-hate relationship, as in I lo- hated it for, well, I guess it would be a hate-love relationship, really. Um, Because I started out by just not getting it and hating them, and now I've played every, almost every FromSoft game that's come out, and thoroughly enjoyed them. Um, Yeah, and you know, in fact, it was really kind of funny, and a couple days after I recorded that, I saw a video from one of my favorite YouTubers that does it, where he was kind of ragging on Elden Ring for some stuff. And I'm like, okay, I see some of his points, but some of his points were, I felt like, you know, it was, I felt there were some elitist points in there. Um, but that's, that's a, that's another thing for another time. Um, okay. So I have been very vocal of my love of horror and have been very vocal about my love of comics. So, I guess today I'm going to kind of combine the two, Um, but I'm going to start by saying, you know, as a horror fan and a comic fan, there's really not a lot of really great examples of mixing the two. Uh, There's been some valiant efforts and whatnot, but uh, for the most part, I think it's, to me, it's really hit and miss on them actually pulling off a true horror comic. But, that said, I am going to talk about a few of my favorites, just in case there's anybody out there who, you know, who's interested. Um, see, I, I think, you know, when I really got, like, I, when I really got back into comics more recently and really started getting serious about it, um, I, Walking Dead was already out there, but. I, I'm going to put it out there. I, I am not a fan of Walking Dead. I read the first like gigantic collection they did, which I think was the beginning up until the pr- the end of the prison storyline. And I remember liking it the first time I read through it. But the second time I tried reading through it, I'm like, this is really bland. And it just, it, it didn't work for me. And I, I really think the show is bad, but I'm, I'm happy it has its viewers and I'm happy that the book had, it's readers because I want to say it's done now finally, um, but it it never captured me the way it captured a lot of other people, um, you know. And that, but I mean that's that's just one book that you know that's probably the longest running I could think of that was been a horror comic, but it just wasn't. It didn't work for me. Um, then again, zombies, I think, are best in small doses and that long of a run of a zombie book that just had a cycle over and over and over again, it it, it, it was bound to fail in my eyes. But I have occasionally stumbled upon ones through just like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this one a shot and see. So I'm going to talk about those ones. And uh, the first one I'm probably going to talk about, I I believe I've already talked about on here once, but I'm going to talk about it again anyways, 
just to remind people it exists, and that is Lock and Key by Joe Hill and Gabriel Rodriguez, uh, brought out by IDW P- Publishing. Um, once again, it's just a, it's kind of at the heart of it. It's a, a story of a kind of a broken family, but it takes some like real horror and fantasy twists in it that really make it stand out. And of course, you know, it, it, it makes a lot of sense that it's written well when you when you know the pedigree of Joe Hill, you know, and the fact that he's Stephen King's son. Um, not that he like ever likes to really make a big deal about it, but if you ever see a picture of him, you can't mistake the fact that he's related to him. Um But uh but yeah, so it's quick quick synopsis I'd say is it's about um a mother and her three kids, two teenagers and one, I want to say he's like eight or nine year old, um, who moved to her dead husband's family, like ancestral home after he is brutally murdered by like a former student of his. Cause I want to say he was, he, he was, I can't remember for some reason, this is like one part that never sticks out to me is whether he was a teacher, or he was a guidance counselor or something along those lines. But this kid shows up one day asking to see him. They let him in and he goes on this brutal massacre as far as on the father. And then the kids survive, the kids and the mother survive and they go to live in his ancestral home key house in Lovecraft, which I love the fact that the, the city is called Lovecraft just because I'm a sucker for a good reference to HP Lovecraft. Um, but anyways, when they get there, you know, it, it seems like it's just this beautiful man, sprawling mansion, uh, that's been cared for by, uh, the brother of the, the dead, dead husband, but it actually is more than that. Cause you know, like, you know, maybe it's a, you know, the same day as they move in or, a day or so later, uh, Bodhi, the youngest, finds this strange key somewhere in the house, and he notices it has a you know a weird like symbol on the top of it. And as he's investigating the house, he finds a door that has that you know that looks like it might fit you know like this key might fit into it. And you know when he puts the key into this door, it doesn't really unlock it as much as it just kind of you know he opens it and it's. It looks the same, but when he leans out to like, see if like something was different on the other side of this door, it basically pulls his spirit out of his body and he can roam around as a spirit while his body is a kind of looks dead on the ground, but that's just the first of many keys they find. And it kind of devolves into this story or not devolves. It evolves into this story of what what are these keys like how many you know they they start finding more and more keys that have various things they can do like one of them allows you to open up your head and you can take thoughts out and put thoughts in and it's really kind of a head head trip so to speak um but as it's going you also start realizing that this house is harboring more than just these crazy keys there's a story behind this house that actually ties pretty, um, pretty heavily into the past of the father. And 
you know, there's there's definitely some skeletons in a closet somewhere in there. And it's but it's this beautiful story of the family. Got some really good heartbreaking moments. Um the mother trying to use the repairing key at one point in time just it damn near broke me. But then you've got these great little lighthearted moments like when Bodhi first shows the other two kids the head key and you know, he opens up his own head and they're all freaking out. And then they realize he's also standing behind them. Cause for some reason, when you do this, you can look into your own head. Um, but, or then there's one where he, like, there's a whole issue that's drawn very Calvin and Hobbes style where the, he's like spends a day as a bird and it's, it's a great thing, but I, you know, I, I'm not going to spoil what, what the, the core of it is. I mean, there is a, there is a, decent netflix show like i watched the first season but it definitely does not follow the comics it kind of makes its own path which is which is fine but they changed enough things that it kind of didn't really make me want to see season two much even though i've heard really good things about season two and some of the acting was really good in it um but it's it's got a you know it's it's got a good run. I mean it's it's a it was a a limited series, so I mean it was uh, thirty seven issues. Um, but you can find that broken into like six trades. Each one of them kind of is named. I want to say each one of them is pretty much named around a key. So that key kind of is the center of the story. But then they also have like five one shots. Um, like there's single issue stories that develop the backstory of like, I, I know there's one that explains the first time a key was made. Um, but then there's like, I remember reading one where it's just this kid basically decides it'd be so much easier to live as a dog. So he goes and has this adventure as a dog for a day. And I want to say at one point in time, they also turn the dog into a human for a little while. And it's just, but I mean, it, so like the stories vary, but usually they have some kind of really good point behind them. And it's a beautiful world. And I really hope at some point in time, Joe Hill does like a longer series that maybe explains either. I could, I would like almost like to see them do a, a, like maybe a three or four issue mini that was just centered around the father and his group of friends um, maybe have it dovetail into where things went wrong, but you know, it, it, or, or just do one, like maybe when the keys, you know, like maybe mid range of when the keys were made, you know, just, just, I'd like to see more in this universe at some point in time. Um, I'm not really describing it, making it sound like a horror, but trust me as you read it, there's some serious horror hidden in this book. Um, so yeah, lock and key. Um, oh, and I, I will try to put in the show notes the names of these books who writes them so that you know if you're in if any of these sound interesting you can track them down and read them um so my next one i'm going to go with is one called nail biter by joshua williamson and mike henderson and it's published through image now this one is definitely more horror um it centers on a town of Buckaroo, Oregon, fictional city in Oregon, um, that is most known for having this high 
percentage of serial killers come out of it. In fact, there's been 16 major serial killers that have come out of this town alone. They, that they call the Buckaroo Butchers. Um, the la- late, last of which was named was called the Nail Biter for his really gross tendency to he'd kill somebody and he'd chew their nails. Like, he'd chew their nails after they were dead, which is a whole other level of gross. But, um... Okay. Uh, but the story kind of kicks off after the nail biter has been captured by an F an FBI agent named Charles Carroll. And I want to say it's like years later, Carroll has gone missing and his buddy from the NSA comes looking for him and like is, is trying to find out what happened to him. So he goes to Buckaroo in hopes of finding some kind of, you know, some kind of information on what happened to him. And I can't remember the, the, the exact situation on how nail biter is out of prison, but I know nail bright nail biter lives in the still like lives in this town. Um, sorry, I should probably say his real name is, I have it written down here somewhere, Charles Warren. Um, and he's like reformed and he's living a semi-normal life in this, this town. But the, you know, so this NSA agent travels back to, travels to this town in hopes of finding the information and it just devolves into like this whole thing of like, why is it that this little no, you know, like kind of hodunk town in Oregon is the center of all this, like all these serial killers. And, um, it's really hard to explain like how deep it goes into this, the weirdness file, but side of it, but it's, it very much is, uncomfortable at points but at the same time it is a great story that keeps you going because you know like you kind of get this buddy comedy or buddy cop kind of thing going between the nsa agent and the nail biter because he kind of wants to help find out what happened to the the fbi agent that caught him but you've also on the other side got this you know darker thing that you can always kind of feel at the 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 back of the you know, kind of in the the background, there's this this darkness that's there. And you do see a lot of flashbacks to some of the other butchers. And I want to say almost like there's spirits of them that haunt at some point in time, too. But, yeah, I'm really not selling these things very well. And I'm sorry if, you know, this is hard to understand because it's... Some of these, it's been a while since I've read. I just, they, but they still stick out to me as being great reads. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that one, um, that one is like actually, uh, I still haven't finished because they did it, did, did do a sequel series to it. Um, but, you know, in the original one, there were 30 issues. Um, it came out originally as 30 issues, but then it's collected into six trades. But then they just did, not too long ago, they did 10 issues of a mini like return series called uh, Nailbiter Returns. And I still haven't gone through and read all that one. So I can't really speak much to that one. But I know it does 
carry the story forward as far as from where the original Nailbiter series left off. And where it left off, it did kind of leave a little bit of a cliffhanger with room to run. And Joshua Williamson does a really good job carrying carrying this one. He he writes a really good story. The characters are, you know, compelling. And then the art of uh, Henderson does does really good for it. You know, it's it's dark when it needs to be, and it's it's lighthearted when it needs to be. Um, and I think that's really kind of the good part to it is it finds the balance it needs to find that when you need to build the suspense or the the terror, it's there. But otherwise, it seems like pretty normal with just like this almost like you know, like undertinge of something's not quite right in the background. Um, let's see what, uh, what one do I want to talk about next? Ooh. Um, okay. So this one actually has ties to a comic series, a, a big comic series. And that's a, uh, has a tie to the, the Archie comics. And that is a wonderful little, I'm going to call it a horror comedy called Jughead the Hunger. And this book came around about the same time um, they started. Archie Comics started really branching out at some point in time. And they had their main line, which is, you know, like the typical Archie comics. But then they started doing stuff like Life with Archie, where it was like you started seeing a more realistic take on Archie and you got to see these two different variants of, of his life of one where I think I want to say that what it was is one, one, he was married to Veronica, another one, he was married to Betty. But, um, anyways, as they were doing all these like really branches out, all of a sudden they released a book called afterlife with Archie, which was basically like Archie with zombies. And it kind of showed that, okay, you can take the Archie premise and, twist it with this horror thing. So it wasn't too long after that, that I think the chilling adventures of Sabrina's first, at least the first issue came out. I want to say that one had like a long gap between one and two, but then all of a sudden I see this one jug had the hunger and I'm like, so what's this one? And I, I had heard reviews of it cause it's basically Jughead. You find out like, you know, like Jughead's always eating his hamburgers and he has like this insatiable hunger for some reason. Well, in this book, they take that and they twist it to the point. The reason he has that hunger is cause he's a werewolf. Like he's got, he's got like this dormant werewolf within him. And I can't remember what kicks off like the werewolf genes activating, but they do. And so you get this really fun story of Jughead, who's the lovable kind of idiot best friend in typical Archie comics, who is now suddenly, you know, dealing with the fact that he's a werewolf. And at the same time, like just before he figures out he's a werewolf, there's also like this brutal murder in the town in Riverdale. So he's thinks like, Oh God, am I the one who's doing this? And it's, a really, really fun story. Um, very much more on the comedy side for the most part, but it does not pull back on being violent either. Um, when you see werewolf stuff, it it's brutal. Um, but then again, Afterlife with Archie did the same thing. I mean, it... God, come to think of it, he was kind of responsible for the Afterlife with Archie stuff too, because I want to say... Yeah, Afterlife with Archie, the reason the zombies exist is because... 
his dog Hot Dog gets killed, and he can't let him go, so he takes him to Sabrina, who casts a spell to like bring the dog back, and it turns the dog into a basically a zombie, and the dog bites him, so he's like essentially like the first human zombie, and then it spreads from there. Um. Anyways, Jughead the Hunger, really fun read. Uh, it's had some crossovers with another Archie horror title, uh, Vampironica, which I've never read. Um, but I keep meaning to read that one because it it just sounds you know I'm I'm a sucker for a good you know twist on Archie. Um, and I I love Jughead. He's just like I said, he's that lovable oaf character. Um. Even though I'm uh, a little more partial because of my um, my ex-wife's grandfather he used to always call me Moose. I I never I don't think I ever got around to asking him if he called me Moose because of you know based on the animal because I'm just I'm a bigger guy or if he called me Moose because I looked a lot when I had hair I looked a lot like Moose from Archie comics. But you know maybe it's maybe it's better I don't know for sure I I. I tend to lean towards the fact that I just look a lot like moose um, more than I look like a giant horned beast of some kind. Um, so yeah, that's uh, Jughead the Hunger. Uh, that of course comes out through Archie Comics as their own label. Um, but that one, there are 14 issues, but it was collected. In, it's been collected into three trades. And then I know the, the art or Jughead, the Hunger meets Vampironica is it's like its own little kind of mini, so it's like it's got its own trade. But I still haven't read that one. I've read the at least the first two of Jughead, the Hunger. I think I've only read the first. Yeah, I've only read the first two. I need to find the third at some point in time, whenever I catch up on my reading stack. Um, but that's oh sorry, but that's written by Frank Thierry with art by Mark Walsh. And it is not your typical Archie Comics art. It does not feel like that 50s, you know, very cartoony art. It's way more realistic takes. Um, The werewolves are actually really scary looking. Um, And that makes it great. Uh, Because, yeah, taking this wholesome property and giving it just that little tweak. Um, But still keeping the humor. Um... So yeah, let me let me see if I have any other notes on that one that I meant to talk about. I do not. Okay, now this one's a, a technicality because I read this comic because I first read the trilogy of books that came out because I am a huge Guillermo del Toro fan, and I want to say it was my my ex mother in law found a book at a like she was at a um I want to say she was at like the airport or something and she saw his name on the front of this book and like oh maybe Ted would want to read that it's called The Strain and I read the first book long before the other two came out thank god so it was one of the few series like I actually read as it was like as the books were coming out um but anyways in you know I think it was like maybe four or five years after the the final book wrapped up or the third book came out, they Dark Horse really started doing an adaptation of them. 
And I'm like, okay, I have to sign up for this. I love the books. I got to see how they're going to do this in comic form. Um, but yeah, so it's The Strain by David Lapham, I think is how it's either Lapham or Lapham. I'm thinking it's Lapham and Mike Huddleston. Once again, published by Dark Horse Comics, and it's based on uh, Guillermo, Tor Guillermo del Toro and Chuck Hogan's books, The Strain. Of course, in this, they call the entire book series The Strain with just like subtitles for the second two. Um, but when it came out as a book, The Strain was just the first book. So kind of like the series Game of Thrones, they called the whole thing Game of Thrones, but the, the first book was only called Game of Thrones. Everything else was called under a different name, but, um, and then there was the night eternal and, or no, sorry, uh, the fall and then the night eternal, but they collected the whole series into comic books. Um, and it is probably one of my favorite vampire stories. So it's to kind of sum it up. It is, uh, it's about a, a, a plane lands in at JFK Airport in New York, and while it's taxiing from the runway to the the terminal, it just goes dead. Like they get like they lose all contact with it. Like all power is turned off. They've got nothing. So when the ground crew goes out and checks it, all the windows are shut down. Like all the window shades are shut except for one, and all they can see in there is it looks like everybody's dead. So they fear there might be like a, a viral pathogen in there, whether it be a weapon or just happen. Somebody got sick and some violent, you know, violent disease spread throughout this plane. Um, but because they fear that they call for this really like elite unit of from the CDC called a canary unit led by Ephraim Goodweather and his assistant uh, slash kind of girlfriend, Nora, I want to say it's Nora Martinez. Yeah, Nora Martinez. Um, but, and when they get onto this, you know, they, they get there, they get all, get in all their, you know, their bunny suit kind of thing. And they go in and everyone looks dead in here. I mean, they got these black lights going. They think every one of them has like this weird mark on them, but they really don't know what the mark means. And they think everyone's dead, but then suddenly I think it's four people come back to life. Like four people start interacting like they're alive. So now all of a sudden there's a mystery of, okay, what happened on this ship or on this plane that, Everybody except for four are dead. And there's all these weird signs that something weird happened. Like, you know, they, they break open the hold and there's this giant chest that's down there that is just filled with dirt. And at certain points in the cabin, they notice with their black lights that there's almost like a, a spray, almost like I think they, they compare it to like ammonia. Like it smells like ammonia, but then there's like a, a spray pattern on the ceiling, like something was... Uh, they, they compare it to uh, rat uh, rat feces, essentially. I guess like when rats eat, they kind of excrete at the same time. But anyways, neither here nor there. But and as they're going, you know, like it's 
so they're starting to try to unravel like what disease hit this plane and so it takes van it, it, it it's vampirism but it's told more from like at least for the first book it's told way more from a standpoint of uh from a medical standpoint like how it's how this vampirism is affecting the bodies of these four survivors because of course those four survivors are 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 turned um well everybody on the plane ends up turned in the long run but that's beside the point as well um but and then but so it takes this medical side but then you also have one of my favorite like two two other side characters that kind of explain this infestation that's starting from a different perspective one of them is uh a pest control guy named vasily fett who is by by all means my favorite character in the book series he's just awesome and you know they have done a tv show of this as well um it's mildly faithful but vasily fett is played really well by i think the actor's name is kevin duran I think that's Durand Durand or I I don't I want I I think I'm messing up that name um but anyways he uh anyway so yeah Vasily Fed is a a pest control guy and he starts noticing that there's a lot of weird activity of rats because like he specializes in rat control like you know like rats and he notices that they're getting more brazen as far as like attacking houses in broad daylight. And he starts noticing a lot more of them on the streets, especially in daytime, which isn't a very normal thing. Um, and they kind of do pay a little tribute to, you know, ground zero. There's a whole point where he has to go to, he goes to ground zero. Cause like, that's the easiest way to get to certain points. And, but so yeah, you got his perspective of seeing it from a pest control thing. And you have this old pawn shop owner. Oh God, I'm going to forget his name, aren't I? Uh, did I have it written down? I did not write it down. Holy Jesus. Why could I not think of his name? Oh God. Anyways, you get a pawn shop owner who survived World War II concentration camps. And he has a history with this essentially the, the the master vampire they just call him the master i don't think they ever give him a full-on name but anyways you know you find out as the stories go that he while he was in a concentration camp he had a run-in with this this vampire because he noticed like people were just dying of weird circumstances every now and then in this thing in this concentration camp and one night he just happened to hear something and he you know, he, he opened his eyes, but he still pretended to be asleep. And he watched this kind of dark entity. He never really, you know, like he can't really see exactly what it is, but like lean over another, you know, prisoner. And the next morning that prisoner's dead, but he was like this amazing woodworker. So he, he was valuable to the, the Nazis. So they, you know, he was kind of valuable, but, um, so he has this history, and he'd heard the the lore of this this creature. Oh, that's right. They do call the creature Joseph Sardu, even though that's really not the creature's name. That's just like one of its hosts. Because really, the vampires of this are way more of a like. A, well, at least when it comes to the master, it's 
the body is way more of a host than really the true entity. The entity kind of lives within this, within the husk. Um, but he has this history with it from, from this run-in with him that like caused him to lose both of his hands. And he almost died in the concentration camp because he had no value once his hands were broken. Um, but he has sworn his life to like stop this this entity if he ever gets the chance. So of course he's he's in New York at this point in time. They heavily hint that he's had a a rough go in between his time and uh in the concentration camp till till modern day where he's running this pawn shop. But he's he get he hears the story of this plane landing and going dead and how only four survive you know four survivors came out of it but they were like comatose when they first got on the plane so it's like what you know and he recognized the sign so he tries to go to good weather them to tell them you know like hey this needs to be taken seriously this is a uh you know this is a vampire and of course, everybody just kind of laughs away and he gets locked up because he crossed a quarantine line to try to talk to them or something. But in the long run, all these, this motley crew end up together as like kind of like a, essentially a vampire hunting group. But you also start finding out that this vampire wasn't alone because like he needed help or it needed help to get to America like it couldn't because they can't travel over water on their own they have to have help from someone else but it is a great story I highly suggest it to people I mean watch the, t the TV show wasn't bad like I've watched the first two seasons I have the other two and it's just like I don't have enough time in the day so I haven't got around to watching the second two seasons um, I also was kind of a little upset with the way they changed something at the end of the second season that really should have set things going forward with a lot more impact than they gave. But I'm I'm going to stick it through so I can see how they wrap up the show because I, I thought it was... I think it's really done. It's got a good cast because... Um, oh, I... Like I said, you got that, that guy playing... The silly fat, and I wish I have my phone right here. I guess I could Google him, um, because it has some really good actors in it, and I can't for some reason right now the names are just not popping into my head properly, and I don't like that. Um, so let's see if I can find the TV show. Okay, that's talking about the books. So I don't want the books. TV show. Hey, this is riveting podcasting. I know you listening to me talk to myself while I'm Googling. Oh, there we go. Okay. You got a uh, Corey Stoll, who I think is a good actor when he's in the right role. He plays Ephraim Goodweather. Um, oh, I was right. Kevin, Kevin Durant, Durand plays Vasily Fett. There's the other one right there. Uh, David Bradley uh, of infamous Game of Thrones fame playing uh, Walder Frey. 
plays uh, Ab- Abraham Satrakian is the name of the the old man, the old Jewish man, and he he is an amazing character. Um, when I read the books, though, I always pictured uh, John Hurt playing the part, and I would have loved to have seen John Hurt play the part, but. He David Bradley does a really good job as Satrakian. Um, so yeah, that's that's the strain. Um, but like I said, as they came out, they were like the strain was like the first 12 issue miniseries. Um, and then they did the strain the fall, and they did the strain night eternal. Um, each of those was like 12 issue mini. With, and they, each of those have been collected into like these really beautiful hardcover versions, which I own. And those those hardcovers are beautiful, and they're a really great way to read the story. But they also did like a little six issue. Um, I want to say it was like a three, five or six issue series. Oh, five issues limited series that follows a. Uh, like a a side character that is like basically he was I guess you kind of consider him Blade in a way because he was born of a mother that was bitten but he was never bitten so he has basically all the strengths but he only has like a mild light sensitivity and whatnot so he he works for well as it comes out there's like there are other ancient vampires that are out there and they do not want this master to get powerful. So they, uh, they have like a, basically like a vampire hit squad and Mr. Quinlan runs it. And he's the one that has his own mini series. And you get this whole backstory of like where, when he was created and all that kind of stuff. Like it's, it's a really fun story. It's really dark. Um, I remember there was a point in the book that I thought no way they were going to put into comic book form. And I was right when I said, like I was wrong on that one, but I was definitely right when I said, there's no way they were going to put it properly in the TV show. And they allude towards it in the TV show, but they do not show, show it in the show it in the TV show. And that's like, it, it really starts getting into like what the transformation from human to vampire is. And how the body starts shedding unnecessary organs and whatnot. And it it gets really graphic in the book and in the comic. But anyways. So that is The Strain. Once again, really, really good one. Um, you know, I'll give a quick mention to uh, BPRD, which is a spinoff of Hellboy. Um, I personally think it's better than the true Hellboy comics because I've always found like the, some of the side character on Hellboy in comics a lot more, um, fascinating. So it focuses on like, you know, Liz Sherman, Abe Sapien. Um, one, two of my favorite characters are, uh, Roger, the humunculus or I, I don't know how you pronounce it. He's only a small part in the long grand scheme of the series, but he's this really great character. That's very innocent. But then, uh, there is a character and they actually used him in the more recent, uh, Hellboy movie, um, 
played by Daniel Day Kim, and he did a really good job of it. But let me find. Oh, there, Captain Ben Diamio, um, who at first just comes off as this like war veteran that's very hard ass and whatnot, but then. He's got like this nasty scar across his face. And then as it goes, you find out that that scar was, he was working as like special forces somewhere and he got attacked by a were Jaguar, I believe is what it was. And it scratched him. So he is now a were Jaguar. And first there's something about that character that just, he's awesome. So that, that, that's just a quick honorable mention. And I'm not even going to try to break down how big that was. Cause that series is still going, but, and it, it kind of works in like these weird like rotations. So like sometimes you're getting more modern day BPRD. A lot of them go into like early, early BPRD. Like some of it's even, I want to say kind of close to like pre Hellboy, but you get like a lot of world war two, world war one, but you also get a lot of more modern day stuff. Like a lot of the stuff I've read of it has been the more modern day stuff, but there are some really good stories that come out of like, you know, Professor Broom, I think that's, they might have changed his name for the movies. I can't remember. But anyways, the the professor is like investigating things or sends other people to investigate things in early BPRD. And, you know, it, it definitely, definitely leans into the Lovecraftian horror in that one very much, you know, but that's a, that's a big Hellboy thing. Um. But like, yeah, like I said, I really, I really feel that series is good, and I really need to dip back into it because I, I, I read like most of the modern day stuff, but when they started dipping into some of the the side stories of like in the past, like some of them I didn't didn't really sound interesting, so I was waiting for them to collect, and I just never picked up the trades of it. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a cool honorable little honorable mention. Um. I had one more on here, I thought. Aha! Uh, this is another fun one. Um, very different take. Uh, light horror. I mean, it's horror fantasy. Um, but it's a book called Helheim by Colin Bunn with art by the beautiful artist Joelle Jones. Um, by all rights, it's weird that she did. she would do the art for this book. Because she has this very beautiful art style, and it is a very gruesome book, but it's really cool to see her take her art style and draw some really fucked up shit. Um, but it's published by Oni Press, and it's really kind of a, um, it's kind of a like a nor or a Viking version of uh, Frankenstein. Uh, it's been a while since I've read it, so I've gonna, I'm gonna have to really think hard to to remember exactly how it all starts. I remember where it goes, but I just can't remember. Like I just remember it starts with this one Viking warrior dying in a battle of some kind, and I want to say it was they were attacking a village because there was rumors of like a witch or whatever. Well, he dies, and it she brings him back, but he's very much this like superhuman being that she's basically twisted to protect her. I want to say is what it was. Um, but yeah, so it's like, he's basically this undead massive being 
that like he looks like he's stitched back together at points um who's been co-opted by this witch to protect her but you find out there are like other witches and like really they've been kind of from what i remember running stuff in the background kind of thing but you know a lot of people are you know against his very existence of course because you know he's he died and you know to to bring someone back especially at that era was very you know stigmatized i guess i mean not that it really wouldn't be modern day if it could be done um but yes but it at the same time it starts bringing in just some weird ass shit like i mean i want to say there's like giant scorpion creatures at some point in time and all this stuff and like and they they did do a, a sequel called brides of hellheim which did officially wrap up the story but man it's it's a really good like I said, horror fantasy, because it's got its horror tinges with, you know, giant creatures and a guy walking around that's, like I said, basically Frankenstein, but a Viking version. And, um, well, he doesn't have the cool horned hat, but he's still a Viking. Um, and then, you know, these these witches, like, and their plays on, you know, like, they're, them kind of having their plays for kind of control. I don't... You know, I don't think they ever really dig in too deep into what they're trying to control, but it kind of was almost creepier for not knowing what their ultimate plan was. Um, but yeah, that was uh, that was a cool. I mean, like I said, I think that was like two, that's just been like two mini series. Like I don't have it written down here, um, but I want to say that was like two, just like six issue runs of graphic violence completely put together in this beautiful art style which by all rights like i said should not have worked but it did and it's awesome um maybe maybe i'm a little partial also because the fact that i am very much i I, like i i being a thor fan like a lot of norwegian slash viking culture kind of stuff that viking style culture usually speaks to me anyways but yeah so um I've kind of rambled on here. Uh, this is this is one I kind of somewhat put together last minute because I just I, I want to get an episode out and I like to, cause I like to get this done. Um, so I think I'm gonna I'm gonna call it with those ones. Um, once again, I will put the things in show my I'll put some listings in the show notes for like what they're called. Um, if if anybody's interested in you know taking a look at them. Um, as always, if you want to reach me, um, I can be reached at standstrongcast at gmail.com. Um, that's great for questions, comments, you know, just tell me I suck, I guess. No, yeah, that's your, I mean, that's your prerogative. You're wrong, but it's your prerogative. Um, and then, you know, I'm going to give my thank yous to, well, Anybody out there listening, thank you. Um, thank you to Michelle and Tony for supporting me, you know, and and also being guests on the show every now and then, uh, and giving me feedback every now and then on my episodes. Just let me know like what I could do better or not. Um, some of it I'm still taking to heart because I still need to figure out how I'm going to work their advice. Um, but anyways. Uh, then a thank you to Spider for my album artwork, or for my album artwork, 
for my cover art for my podcast and for my tattoo work. Um, anybody in the, eh, screw it, in the Vancouver battleground-ish area looking for a good tattoo artist, I will highly suggest all of them at five star, really. Um, you know, Spider's, Spider's worked on me, um, and he's done great work, but, you know, I've seen the work of uh, Levon and Amanda. I want to say her name is Amanda. I'm a sorry if I'm sorry if, if you're if I'm getting your name wrong. I wasn't meaning to, but I'm pretty sure it's Amanda. But anyways, um, you know they've all done really great work. But yeah, out at Five Star Tattoo Battleground, Washington. Give it a look if you're in the area. Uh, if you live in the area and you you want to get some tattoo work done, I think they're all pretty well booked, solid right now because of you know having to catch up after uh, COVID. But you know it it never hurts to get your name on the list, so to speak. Um, so with that, I am going to say thank you once again for listening, and I will see you in two weeks. Bye bye.